Welcome to episode 23 of the Philosopher Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Daniel S. Quintana about his research, his usage of air programming language, and his view on open science practices. Hi, Dan. Thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I am, um, I'm a senior researcher at the University of Oslo and I primarily work in uh, biological psychiatry and I'm interested in how our physiology impacts our thoughts and behaviors and I primarily investigate two areas. One is the oxytocin system, which a lot of people know for its role in breastfeeding and in childbirth, um, but more recently has become uh, a topic of interest in psychology. Uh, and also, um, I look at the autonomic nervous system and how that impacts our thoughts and feelings. Uh, but more recently, I've gotten interested in metascience, which is the uh, the um, area of research, which is researching research. Uh, so that, is, um, that has been a, a big topic of what I've been doing recently. And on top of that, I also uh, co-host a, a podcast called Everything Hurts, which is uh, looking at life in the biobehavioral sciences and covers a lot of stuff about open science. But uh, sometimes we uh, we get pretty niche about some of our research topics. Um, but that's uh, that's been a lot of fun. Good. How many episodes of Everything Hurts have you released up to now? We just released episode 94 this morning. So I think it's been uh, just just over just over three years now. So it's gone for quite a while. Yeah. Congratulations! All the topics of research you named, uh, in which way are they linked together? In other words, what got you from oxytocin to heart rate variability research to meta analysis and reproducible science? What is the link between all of those? <laughs> Uh, that's, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I guess when you look at this idea of oxytocin in psychology research, it's one of these things that has been commonly associated with a lot of hype. Um, 10 years ago, in 2005, a study came out in, uh, in Nature, which suggested that oxytocin increases trusting behavior. And that really got the ball rolling when it came to research on oxytocin. But since then, um, there's been a lot of promise. People have thought this is going to be um, the next new treatment for autism or for schizophrenia. But uh, the results started not to actually match the expectations that we had. And this neuropeptide or the use of this neuropeptide by administering it intranasally um, created a ton of hype and a lot of, uh, a lot of results uh, basically were not reproducing and people couldn't actually reproduce the original early results. And originally we thought oxytocin was a pro-social hormone in that um, it had this nickname called the cuddle hormone, but then more and more we actually realized that that's not necessarily the case. Um, and because of this hype, I was looking at my own research going, well, if we actually want to discover um, what oxytocin really does, we need to change the way that we're doing research. Because right now, there's a lot of publication bias in, in, in all areas of psychology research, but also in the area of oxytocin research. And so, looking at reproducible science, I saw this is how we're actually going to get discoveries and understand what the, what the oxytocin system does. And it's the same sort of thing with heart rate variability. Uh, a, a, lot of the re a lot of these results weren't replicating, and it was very hard to actually understand what people did in their analyses. So with reproducible science, it was more of a way of looking at it going, this is the way that we're actually going to get a, bit of a better understanding about these, uh, these complex biological systems. You seem to be using R a lot in your research. Uh, where does it fit in your workflow, and how do you use it? Uh, well, it, it was interesting how I actually got into R in, in the first place. Um, uh, 
uh, a lot of people are like, oh, it, it must be because of the fact that it's reproducible. But it was actually because uh, I was just incredibly frustrated with SPSS and I had a lot of trouble with the licensing and I was just it was just annoying because it took about 10 minutes for it to start up. And, and because I actually had a lot of trouble with licensing from a university, I, I really needed to do an analysis. I'm like, oh, I better give this R thing a shot. So I think it was maybe about just as I was starting my postdoc about sort of six or so years ago that I started getting into it for primarily for analysis and because it could do some sort of analyses that were very difficult to do in SPSS, uh, mixed linear models, which, which are possible in SPSS, but, but, uh, but difficult. And now I actually find I'm using it um, both for my statistical inference, um, but also for, uh, for for visualization of results. Um, but also a few unexpected I, uh, um, things. I actually code and write my website in R. It's written completely in R, um, and uh, so it's, it's 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 there's a few unexpected things. But mainly it is um, statistical inference and data visualization. Okay. What would be your 30 seconds elevator pitch to convince one of your colleagues to use R? Ah, well, I think your most important collaborator is yourself in the future. And R makes it really easy to reproduce your analyses, um, both for yourself to do in the future, uh, but also for others to verify your work. Uh, working with SBSS, which is what I did when I was doing my PhD, um, the amount of times I would do an analysis but actually couldn't actually figure out what I did in the first place, even though I described how to do it in the paper, going back and doing it was very difficult um, because SPSS, although it's possible to reproduce your work using syntax, uh, it isn't the natural thing to do. It's not set up for doing that. So it's about um, being able to reproduce your analyses. Okay, so R could be seen as a way to remove a source of error in your analysis as well, scripting your analysis? Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Um, it's, it's, it's much easier to do that, and it's also much easier for others to spot errors as well in your work if you're sharing your data. Okay, so many students were taught using tools such as SPS statistics during their studies. How difficult would it be for them to switch to R? Because maybe they now can do independent research as a PhD candidate or a postdoctoral fellow and want to switch to R. Do you think it's difficult, it's easy to switch, or is it a steep learning curve? Uh, well, I think it's actually easier than people think. There's been a lot of hesitation for psychology departments in particular in whether they should actually be switching their teaching from SPSS to R. And there's a few uh, really good case studies. I think one group which is doing this really well is the University of Glasgow. Uh, Dale Barr and Lisa de Bruin are doing a fantastic, and their team are doing a fantastic job uh, introducing R and uh, documenting their experiences in actually changing the curriculum. And they've actually found that a lot of the students, um, it isn't as hard as people think. A lot of people are like, we're not going to do this because our students are going to find this too difficult. But I think you should be giving people a little bit more credit than that. Of course, uh, like learning any new language, it can be difficult. Um, but there, there was something that I read when I was learning R myself. It was in a, an R textbook. I think it was by Hadley Wickham, um, who is the author of, of the Tidyverse and the countless R packages. And he said in the introduction that um, every single time that you actually notice a frustration or you're frustrated or you're hitting a dead end, it means you're learning something new. And this is something that I've always reminded myself with R, that as soon as I'm frustrated with something, it means that I'm learning something new that's going to be handy. Um, so it, it takes work, um, but I think the work is absolutely worth it. 
when do you think is the best time to switch? Do you think people should get some experience with SPS or they should immediately start with R? Look, I, I think the earlier the better. Um, people are, this, this is what's happening with, um, for, for instance, that example before the University of Glasgow, they're starting straight from R. I think all things equal, it is much, much easier to start from scratch from R than it is to actually, uh, a, a lot of courses I know in undergraduate that are teaching SPSS and then in postgraduate studies are going to R, um, but of course it's much easier to actually go from the beginning from R. Uh, in the past, you also talked about tools such as JASP and Jamovi for statistical analysis. If I'm not mistaken, these are kind of front ends to actual R code. Uh, do you think that those are substitute to learning R or they are instead uh, um, an easier way to ease the transition? I think uh, both JASP and Jamovi are perfect as a gateway to R. Um, these are important tools because firstly, they demonstrate how uh, reproducible analysis can be done. I like JASP because it uh, integrates very well with open science framework in the sense that you can post your work, um, you can post your JASP file and people can actually see um, the, the, the data set that you used, the analysis that you used and your results. So it's very much integrated and it's very easy for others to actually reproduce your analyses either through OSF or just from sharing the file. Um, I believe Jamovi can do something similar. Um, the one uh, small advantage I see with Jamovi is that you can turn on something called syntax mode. And if you turn on that option, you can actually see the exact R syntax that was used to generate the analyses. And then you can run that syntax in R. So I see that as actually a nice way to transition from point and click to R. Um, but also, I think a lot of people kind of are very... Um, You know, it's R or nothing when it comes to open science or when it comes to reproducible analyses. But most, so some of the students that I supervise uh, are research students. They want to do research for their careers and I encourage them. In fact, I tell them they have to use R. Um, but I also supervise some clinical psychology students um, who have to do a master's project uh, as part of their research. And they're not necessarily going to continue for, for research for their careers. So in that case, I actually tell them, um, you should be using Jamovi for your analysis instead, recognizing that there is a little bit of a learning curve for R. But the good thing with Jamovi is it still encourages reproducible analyses, but it's easy in the sense that it's point and click. Um, but you can still actually do the, the, the syntax as well. So it is good for a transition, but like I said before, it, you are better off actually starting with R um, if that's what you want to do for the long term. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I usually use R for uh, doing graphs most of the time because I don't have a lot of statistical analysis in my research. Uh, but uh, when I had to, at some point, I had to look up for a statistic method to solve a problem that I had. And I always like I had a, a, a strange feeling when I performed the analysis at some point, like it's, it seems too easy. A single line of comments do a <laughs> really complex data analysis. And I've all, like, at that time, I felt like a under underwhelmed by the fact that like, i had a climax in my head like okay that's gonna i need to code that i need to do that and then poof i got the results without anything <laughs> you feel like that sometime with r 
Yeah, look, that happens all the time, and I think that really recognizes recognizes that with R, you can you can scratch your own itch. If you have a certain problem that you want to solve with your research, there's a very good chance that other people's other people have had that same sort of problem, and then they they can write their own functions to do the same sort of thing. So, although what seems like magic because you're writing a one line script actually has a lot of back end behind it, but that's because someone else has put a lot of the work in, um, uh, and behind that one line function is maybe a hundred lines of code. Uh, so it's incredible um, that. With, with almost anything that you want to do, someone has written something for it, and if there's a, in, in, if for that chance where it hasn't actually occurred, then you can write it yourself, which is um, which is brilliant. So you were telling us you would prefer that undergrad students start to use R, and what do you think about Python? So would it be a good alternative to use Python instead of R, so they learn a programming language which is more flexible for other kind of tasks? Look, I, I think R and Python should be taught hand in hand. Um, they both have their strengths and weaknesses, particularly for psychology research, which is the area that I'm coming from. Um, Python is very useful for programming experiments and, for, for instance, presenting stimuli, looking at reaction time tasks, um, that kind of thing. Um, th those things you just can't do within R. And when it comes to pro a programming language per se, Python is much better. Um, but when it comes to statistical inference, of course, you can do a lot of the stuff within Python. But I think for now, um, R is the way to go for, for inference. So um, if I was to design an undergrad or grad level course from scratch, um, I would include um, I would include both R and, and Python. Probably more of a focus on R, um, but then if people are doing more experimental psychology or more programming, then, um, then there's definitely room for Python. Um, I mean, some of the analysis that I do um, has a little bit of Python in it, just because the libraries are, are better suited and something didn't exist within R, but I would say 95% of the work that I do um, is, is within R. So can you actually call Python code in R or is it not possible? That That is possible. Um, I don't do it myself. I'm not sure how reliable it is, but I have some colleagues who, who do that as well. So there is a way of doing that as far as I know. But uh, yeah, it's not really my strength. So don't, don't quote me on that. But uh, yeah, definitely it is. Um, I'm very sure it's possible. Okay. Maybe the other way is probably possible as well. I think so. Yeah. What are your must-have R packages? Like, which one do you use in almost all your projects, and which one could you not live without? Oh, that, that, that's a good question. I could probably not live without uh, the the tidyverse packages, which I mentioned before. Just when it comes to actually dealing with data and data wrangling. Um, they're almost indispensable. I mean, of course, you can do most of these things within base R, but it's a little bit quicker within tidyverse. Other things as well would be uh, more in relation to plotting and visualization. Um, there's a great package called uh, Cowplot, which is um, a wrapper of ggplot2, and it basically makes your plots look really nice. It, there's a really cool story behind this. Um, the author of Cowplot, his name is Claus Wilk or Wilkie, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. And he found himself that when his students were sending him plots, he would always tell them the same sort of instructions. Oh, you know, you need to do your axes with, 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 with the, these sort of dimensions, these kind of colors. Um, here's how you do your axes lines. And he figured out, well, rather than actually telling my students to do this, I should actually write my own package. And that's exactly what he did. Um, and he's just written a book on data visualization, which looks fantastic and it's free and it's online. You should check it out. So Caplot's amazing. And a second package, um, which is also related to ggplot2, is called ggstatsplot. And this one's really nice um, because it also makes your graphs 
and figures look nice like cow plot. But on top of that, it actually superimposes the results of the, of the statistical test on whatever plot you're doing, um, whether it's a, um, a scatter plot or, or violin plots or, or what have you. Whatever test you're doing, um, it, it superimposes that, um, which is perfect for presentations um, and also some publications as well. But when you're actually just doing some data um, ex- exploration, um, this, this package is fantastic. So check GG Stats Plot. Highly recommend it. Yeah. So can you recommend some neat tutorials, online resources, or small projects for people interested to play around with R? Um, I think it really depends on, on what you want to do. If, if you're interested in statistical inference, I would highly recommend this book by Danielle Navarro. Uh, it's called Learning Statistics with R. Um, and it's, it's free and it's online and it goes through step-by-step all the main sort of things you want to do with R when it comes to inference, which is fantastic. Another really good bridge is a lot of people when it came to, when it comes to SPSS learned SPSS through Andy Field's book. And uh, Andy Field, uh, I think more recently in the past few years, has actually written the same sort of book, but for R. Um, so it's exactly the same, as far as I know, except rather than doing SPSS, he does R. So that's a really good way of actually learning it. Um, when it comes to actual d- data wrangling and data management, um, the University of Glasgow, like I mentioned before, has some great online resources and tools and exercises for, for basic wrangling tasks. Um, but there's always new stuff popping up online um, when it comes to these sort of, these, these sort of things. But uh, this Learning Statistics with R book is, uh, is fantastic when it comes to, to inference. Okay, thank you. I think we will put some of these links to the blog post about this episode. We were also interested in your recent preprint about synthetic data set uh, that you talked about. Uh, for our listeners that may be not, know, not knowledgeable about what is synthetic data set, uh, could you elaborate on the term? Uh, what, what is that? How do you make a synthetic data set? Uh, we'll also link the, the, the article in our show notes. Uh, yeah, I think synthetic data sets are basically a, a data set which has exactly the same statistical properties as an original data set, and all the variables have the same uh, multivariate re- relationship from the data set, except every single person in the data set is different. There's no way of actually identifying a, a particular individual in the synthetic data set who represents an individual in the original data set. Uh, this is, is an incredible tool that was first um, developed, I think it was in the early 90s, when it comes to um, sharing uh, census or population data. That's why the package is called SynthPop, uh, Synthetic Populations. Um, and basically, they these researchers who work with, you know, say, education data, um, what are the education outcomes for, for, for a given region in the US, for instance, um, they wanted to be able to share this data so other people can actually do exploration. But of course, uh, there are privacy considerations. Uh, and, this is, and this is exactly the same problem that we have in the psychological sciences in that we want to be able to share our data. We want others to be able to actually um, see and reproduce the work that we're doing. Um, but in many circumstances, um, the, for whatever reason, we can't um, actually share the raw data. Um, uh, for instance, if you're if you're dealing with a with a rare population, uh, for, uh, Oslo, where I work, um, it isn't a, isn't a big town, and if um, I do a lot of research in adults um, with autism, 
Um, and there isn't that many adults in autism in a small town. Uh, so it can be very relatively easy to identify people. Um, so in order to do that, you want to be able to um, still um, share your data um, and other people can reproduce it. And, and that, that, that is the key with synthetic data in that the reason that we're sharing data is so that other, other people can actually reproduce it um, and also do hypothesis-driven or also generate hypotheses from this data. Um, but at the same time, it also potentially, it also respects the, 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 the privacy of participants. Um, and I, I came across this, um, I don't know how I found it, but um, there was a really good package uh, and the package is called Synthpop. Um, which which does this, and um, I, I couldn't believe almost no one has actually done this um, within the psychological sciences. Almost no one has used this, and so I wanted to make. Um, I, I only found two papers which did this, and, and one of them is actually a very nice case study why you should do this. Um, the data was looking at sexual behaviour, very personal questions, um, and these, these are not, not the kinds of questions that generally you want the public to know. And so the author of this, um, Ruben Arslan. Um, wanted to share the data. He's, he's he's very big on open science, but considering the sensitivity of the data set, he created um, using the synthpop package. He created a synthetic data set so that others could actually reproduce um, the the analysis. Um, and so, but other than that, um, there wasn't much work on this. So I wanted to create a tutorial on how to do this. And as, as an interesting side note, I live streamed the entire writing of this paper and posted it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so um, every all, all the struggles with coding, um, all all the swearing under my breath, because I, I think a lot of people, um, particularly early career researchers, look. I, I wouldn't consider myself a senior a senior researcher by any means. I'm more of a late early career researcher, but they think that coding is easy. So by live streaming this, I wanted to actually demonstrate that the coding is hard and um, it's it, it, it can take some time. And uh, yeah, it was just an interesting experiment in actually documenting documenting my work um so i i, I can send you the link to the um to the live streams of of the coding of the synthetic data set um so so essentially what it does is with the synthetic data sets using a method that's similar to multiple imputation creates the synthetic data sets which actually um, has the same properties so you can reproduce the, the these analyses um so it's a really great way of uh, of of sharing your data okay so synthetic data set could be used as a way to uh, anonymize people in a database so that they cannot be identified for privacy or for protection reason, like for, for example, LGBTQ uh, groups in China or something like that. That's, that, that's correct. Um, at the moment, um, there is no way to, 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 to crack this. Um, I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, what sort of technology is going to be available. Um, but right now, um, it, is, it is essentially impossible um, to, to identify people with, with two caveats. One of them is that in your population, if it is a smaller population and there are very obvious outliers, um, because with the synthetic data sets, um, say within your population you had uh, 50 people, and one of them happened to be 80 years old, oh. and the, 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 the next oldest person was, was 50. Um, the synthetic data set might not, might not actually recreate them as someone who's 80, but still recreate them as someone who's 79 or 81, for instance. Yeah, it fudges the data, but not enough to totally identify any outlier. Exactly, exactly. So any obvious single 
outliers, um, that is the only potential issue when it comes to synthetic data sets. Um, but otherwise, it is not possible right now to identify anyone under almost every single circumstance. Can you think of a research topic where a synthetic data set wouldn't make sense? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would just come down to these very, very small populations with very specific outliers. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and the, the other thing to consider as well is that you always have to check the validity of your synthetic data set. There are some circumstances, and it's not clear under which circumstances, but there are some circumstances where the synthetic data set actually doesn't represent or doesn't have good utility in the sense that you running the same analysis is not going to give you similar outcomes to the original data set. Um, so you always have to check these things. And in some circumstances, you're going to find that your synthetic data set simply uh, doesn't reproduce the same sort of analyses. But w when that happens, it's difficult to predict. Um, I know with small-ish data sets, you know, like 100 people, for instance, it works quite well. People have used this for large population-level data sets, but there are some circumstances in these large data sets where they don't reproduce the same sort of outcome. So you have to check every single time. Okay, so new outcomes could be generated based on the randomization effect. Yeah, it, it, it's it's very hard. To, it's very hard to know. Okay. Yeah. So, not. And can you, uh, when you generate the data set, do you have a seed that you can provide so that each time it generates, like from a single data set, uh, uh, the same fudged result? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's possible to set a seed. That. Yeah. That. That's one of the. That's one of the features in the package. Okay, a slightly more general question. How much effort should a researcher spend to make their artifacts available if they have some serious restrictions? So, for example, if someone has some code or some data set and you would have to spend a large amount of time to make it synthetic or to make it that people cannot track people back, What do you think? How much time should someone spend or should he just say, I have some restrictions, I cannot publish it? Or should he try to spend at least 10 hours to make this data set available? Or what do you think about this topic? Well, I think in all these considerations, we first have to consider participant privacy. That should be our first priority. If we can't actually either share the raw data due to, due to privacy concerns um, or create a synthetic data set that actually accurately represents the same data, um, then perhaps you shouldn't go to, to you, you shouldn't be spending uh, a lot of time doing this. But one thing I do want to say though is that even if you, even if the synthetic data that you created doesn't necessarily reproduce the results, I think it's still important to share something which 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 even roughly approximates it. Because what it means is is that by sharing your data and sharing your code, people can easily see the analysis that you did. The analysis may not, may not necessarily give you the same outcomes, but at least people can understand what you did. Quite often when you're reading papers, uh, unless it's an extremely straightforward analysis, or, you know, we, we performed an independent samples t-test, it can be very hard to actually understand what people did. But if you're sharing a data set and a set of scripts, um, then you can see exactly the analysis that people did. So at the very least, that's what you can do. Um, but you have to do a you know, huge disclaimer in your paper or in your supplementary material going that um, our synthetic data doesn't have high high utility in that it's not going to represent it's not going to it's not going to generate the same sort of results but like i said the most important thing is considering participant privacy that's got to be the first priority um, and if we can do synthetic data on top of that that's a bonus okay
Considering you live-casted a writing session for one of your articles, which is kind of a good open science practice, uh, what are your views on open science practices? I, I think this is so key. Um, like I mentioned before, we, we are in the midst of re reproducibility crisis in that a lot of the findings within the psychological sciences do not reproduce. Open science is going to go a long way to, to addressing these problems. And I, I think a lot of these issues also come from a lack of transparency. Um, and one of the great things about open science is that it increases transparency when it comes to understanding how people, um, I think it goes two ways. It's about understanding how people got their results, um, but it's also using data to, to generate your own hypotheses based on the data that's already shared. Uh, running experiments is really expensive. Um, if someone has already generated data, that um, can get close to the research questions you want to ask, um, then you can use that data. Um, but, but right now, open data isn't the default. Um, so this isn't necessarily the case. But if people are actually sharing data, then that's going to go a big way when it comes to data exploration. So it's, 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 incredi it's incredibly key um, when, when it comes to how we're doing our research. And things should be open by default, and then you should, you should justify why, why you're not necessarily sharing your data. Uh, I think privacy is a good reason why. Um, but uh, th th this is so key for how we're going to be doing research now and in the future as well. We, we can talk about data. We can talk about the code as well. Uh, where do you think floss as code within your project or research project or any piece of code that you generate or use in a project how do you think that this uh, that floss fits within open science practice for example do you think that we could have open science without floss that's a good question i think i mean open science is a lot of things and and one of those things is reproducibility um um but and that's quite key But having with floss, it, it's 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 necessary in order to actually reproduce the analysis what people have done. Um, for instance, if you're sharing if if you're sharing uh, analysis done by SPSS, um, a lot of people don't. I don't I don't have an SPSS license. Um, so if someone actually share even if they shared the data, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't know how to analyze the data. I wouldn't how to analyze the analysis. So with um with, with open source software, anyone in principle can access the um can can. can reproduce the analysis so it's incredibly important and how much effort should researcher invest in learning and learn to use open source software in their research do you think uh look i think it's really important i, I saw um a, a plot or a graphic that was shared on twitter a few months ago which actually plotted the the use of stati statistical software across all fields And you could see about 10 years ago, um, the, 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 there was only one. SPSS was, was completely dominant. But, um, but then it's been going downhill all the way since then. And, um, and what's rising up is, is both Python and R. So it, it's definitely going to be the way that we're doing our analyses of the future. And if you're going to be doing research in the long term, um, you, you, have to, you have to do it. Look, just just look. Look at all the um, the advertisements for jobs, both in academia and also in industry. People are looking for people who know how to use R and Python. Uh, so th this is such an important skill to to, to to have nowadays. Yeah, and the fact that R can be scaled or Python could be scaled to a cluster size computer, because with SPSS you would need a single license for every node of your cluster. But but now uh, with R, just okay. I need ten thousand nodes to resolve this analysis. <laughs> <laughs> I never actually thought of that. That's a great point. Yeah. So what is your preferred license to share code related to your publications? 
Uh, I like using, I mean, you know, to be honest, this is something that I haven't actually thought about a lot. <laughs> um, but what I've, what I've done by default is, um, is CC by attribution. Um, for me, this seems to make the most sense. To be honest, I haven't read too much into it, but it makes the most sense. So when I'm sharing, uh, typically I'll share um, my code uh, and my data if it's available on Open Science Framework. And within that, then I just use a CC by attribution uh, option. And um, I've actually been surprised by how many people have used this. <laughs> I, I posted um, a short little bit of code when it came to, I, th- I think this, this bit of code was looking at how do we perform a power analysis for, before, for when we're doing a meta-analysis. I did this just as, um, I, I just thought I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, but it's already gotten three or four citations and it's incredible. Just by posting on an open science framework, um, giving it the um, CC by attribution and also assigning it a DOI, um, as part of Open Science Framework, um, pe- people have used it, um, and that, 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 that's, that's been fantastic. But these are the same sort of things that I would actually attribute to um, for, for, for the code and for the data um, attached to my papers, as per usual. Okay. And how were you obtaining this DUI to make your code citable? Were you using Zenodo, or what kind of framework were you using? Uh, within Open Science Framework, um, as a- any public project, um, it is possible with a single click to assign a DOI. Okay. Have you heard about the journal for open source software where you can get a real DOI, which will be taken into account for some HNDCs? No, I haven't actually. That sounds interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that. Yes, we have an episode about this. So yeah, they have a real review process. You Instead of a paper, you submit your code and your code will be assumed to be a paper and you have the same review process as for a paper. So you have an editor, he's looking at the code and then this guy will find some reviewers and then people will review your code and then it's like, yeah, writing some revisions and then they will publish this code and you get a real DUI, which is really taken into account by all those metrics. That's amazing. I've never heard of that. And I, I think there's, there's, there's such a need because right now, um, one of the big problems is that we, within industry, um, people have code review teams. You might code in pairs, for instance. One person is doing their code and, and, and the second person is checking it. Um, but this isn't done within academia. Um, so if there's a, a way that we can actually peer review our code, this is fantastic. I, I do know there is one journal um, the called uh, Metapsychology, um, which is a new um, overlay journal. And this one has um, someone who volunteers to actually go through the code. Um, they don't, they're not necessarily checking um, the veracity of the code. They're just checking that it works and that it does um, as advertised. Um, not that it can be done quicker or that there's any fatal errors, but basically does the code output what is written in the paper. So that's one small step. But what you suggest with this journal, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm going to have to tell everyone about that one. Just to make some advertisement it's episode 20 with the title peer-reviewed publications of research software using goss if you're interested to listen to this episode how important do you think it is to publish in open access journals i think it's very important um the majority of the research that we've done is is funded by the public um yet the public can't actually access the research that we're doing and I don't think we give, and a lot of people will say, oh, the public doesn't understand this, but we've we got to give the public more credit than that. And we, we at least need to give them the opportunity to access the research. And I, I, I trained um, at the University of Sydney, and um, that's when I first 
got uh, exposure to, to open access journals. Um, previous to that, I didn't actually realize that they were a thing. Because I had access to basically every journal that I wanted, I didn't understand the difficulties that some people had in accessing research. But it's only when you actually talk to people over Twitter, both the public, but also people in, in institutions around the world, when they actually tell you, well, we don't actually have access to all these things. And people can't access, can't access this research. Um, so, publishing in open access journals is incredibly important. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize the realities of, of, of academic research. And that unfortunately, the way things are... Um, when it comes to our incentives, both for grant applications but also for jobs, it seems to be important as to which journals you're publishing in. And a lot of those important journals for, for, for a variety of fields don't happen to be open access. Uh, it's really encouraging that a lot of these journals are now moving towards an open access model. But um, at the same time, a lot of these journals are incredibly expensive. Um, so, of, of course, in some circumstances, you can get waivers. Um, but some of these journals are incredibly expensive when they it doesn't have to be the case. When you look at overlay journals um, like Metapsychology, like I mentioned before, these are essentially free. Um, so you don't you don't need to have uh, the, the, these expensive journals in order to to communicate science. But uh, all things being equal, things should be open. But at the same time, I think it's unfair to tell everyone to do this. Um, I know a lot of colleagues who basically say, as a tenured, as a permanent, as an academic with a permanent position, if I have the choice, I will always publish an open access journal. However. If one of my students wants to publish in a non-open access journal, um, considering their their, their 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 career and the realities of academic research, I will not force them to publish in open access. And I think that's a good compromise, that if you have the ability and if it's not going to affect your career, go for it. But at the same time, if other people that you're working with need to do this for their career, um, then, then I think it's okay. But at the same time, even if a paper is published in a closed access journal, um, almost every single journal allows you to post an author-accepted manuscript of the paper on your website so people can actually access them. When you do that, the great thing about Google Scholar is that it will actually find that. It will crawl and find that um, PDF. Um, and then although the official paper is behind a paywall, people can still access the paper if they search it by Google Scholar or um, if you send them a link to, to your website. If it's a personal website, then you can actually post the author-accepted manuscript. And of course, there's preprints as well. Um, so yeah, the, 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 there's a few considerations there. And I don't think we should be um, telling everyone to publish an open access without actually understanding the realities of academic research at the moment. Yeah, I was going to ask if I played the devil's advocate, like, because sometimes publishing in open access journal could mean lower impact factor and some grant agency just look at the impact factor or some skewed uh, metrics or inappropriate metrics. Uh, it could have a certain impact on the, the availability of uh, funding for research grants in the future. So it's, I know plan with plan S in Europe, like, grant agencies are supposed to do not take into account uh impact factors of certain journals and all of that but it's uh, it's it's a problem that needs to be solved <laughs> in long term yeah it, it's a huge problem and i think plan s is going a long way to to doing that um i was speaking with an, with an editor from a fairly prestigious journal and um and, and and he basically said to me like plan s is forcing our hand 
um, that if if in the future we're not going to have or you, we're not going to have the opportunity to accept uh, manuscripts from a whole bunch of European institutions, this is actually going to weaken our journal. So they're they're well on the way of actually moving toward, towards an open access uh, model. Um, so I think I think Planus is working, which 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 is great. There's been a lot of criticisms. Um, some are valid, but most most are not. Um, but um, when it comes to this. Planus is, is, is working fantastic, but I still think one, one of the issues is going to be how people can actually afford to publish in a lot, in, in a lot of these journals. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's tricky. It's not easy. If, if, if this was easy, this would have been solved years ago, <laughs> but it's taking a long time. Yeah, they say they're moving to open access, but okay, $5,000 US for, for that's our, that single article. <laughs> exactly. Some people can afford it, um, but most people can't, and that's unfair. Yeah. Uh, especially third world countries like there's research done in africa or south america <laughs> they need to be able to publish as well yeah exactly exactly and and yeah and i saw a graphic which actually um because a lot of people are like oh that's expensive but the graphic actually demonstrated what is the equivalent of for, for for an average fee what is the equivalent of a year salary and basically it was saying that for for, for many countries in africa and south america and asia publishing an open access article is the equivalent of one year salary it's 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 bonkers it's mad um so it's good that a lot of these journals are offering waivers but still it, it, it's it's incredibly discouraging looking at this um if we're moving towards this open access future which is great um that uh, a lot of people are going to get priced out so we need to find alternatives and, and we know that we can actually run journals for almost almost for free um and so we just need to get away from this this idea of a prestigious journal of judging the importance of an article based on whatever journal it's published in um and just judging each paper on its own merits yeah And what about preprints and all of this? Because that's kind of a way to uh, jump over the the publishing uh, situation. When do you think uh, researchers should consider publishing a preprint instead of a full article? How much do you trust preprint? And what happens if we all go full preprint? We don't we we don't feed the journal. We just go full preprint. What what would happen? You think? That's a good question. Um, I think. Journals at the moment still have uh, an important role to play when it comes to organizing peer review. Um, a lot of people said, well, yeah, we can just get people to actually peer review my preprints. People can say, yeah, my, my preprint has received comments. But when you actually look at the numbers, someone did an analysis looking at BioArchive and they found that less than 5%, I think, actually have any comments on the papers. So right now, there isn't, unfortunately, there's no incentive for people to go and comment Uh, on preprints. So we, I still think we need journals or some sort of system to organize peer review. Um, but at the same time, we, we, can, uh, we, we can do both. We can be sharing our preprints in order to actually get feedback um, before, before publication and for people can actually, people can actually for, for them to access it. But um, we also, um, journals are also important for, um, uh, for peer review uh, and also for organizing Um, organizing research as well. Um, look, I, I know you can you can search for for, for, for stuff, um, but sometimes it's actually quite handy to actually go to a journal within your field, knowing that they're organizing the research that you're interested in. Yeah, yeah. Just looking for archive or bio archive or engineer engineering archive. Like it's okay, but it's all over the place. <laughs> it's huge, and, and it, which is fine. Um, but um, we, we need better ways of organizing it. Um, but when it comes to actually how much we trust a preprint, I mean, that, that's a common criticism that we get. This hasn't been peer reviewed. We, we, we can't trust it, but at least you can read the thing. 
um, we, we, you, can, you can level that same sort of criticism towards published articles. I mean, how many retractions do we find? And, and that, that's that's only the data that the, the papers that we know of that deserve to be retracted. Um, but at least with preprints, we can evaluate it. Uh, some people are against citing preprints in papers. Um, I think that's that, that's wrong. Um, uh, it, it's important to be able to do that. But um, you know, just just like any sort of paper, we need we need to evaluate each paper on its own merits and peer review is can help against or can can help ensure quality of work but it's not a guarantee so we can't say that we can't trust preprints because it hasn't been peer reviewed because we can't say the same for for peer-reviewed research as well okay let us come back to the topic of reproducibility so Imagine you could publish a perfect paper in your field. What kind of information and artifacts like code or data set should be attached to this paper to make it really reproducible for other peers? I, a few months ago, I discovered something amazing. Um, and it's called, and you're probably familiar with it, they're binder packages. This thing is absolutely incredible because what you can do with these binder packages is that you can create a snapshot of your analysis a snapshot of your code and your analysis so that anyone in the future can actually reproduce it. Um, it is great that people are sharing their data and their analysis, but um, I think if you took a snapshot of people who were sharing their analysis from five years ago, it would be very difficult um, to reproduce that because R, the, 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 the software version changes and the packages that you're using for your analyses change as well. And so it's going to be a lot of fiddling to actually get that analysis again. However, with binder packages, it takes a snapshot of the R version that you're using and the versions of the um, packages that you're using. And it's super easy because it creates an, an instance of R Studio Server and you can actually um, re- recreate the analysis completely. And I did this with, um, I'm currently updating my synthetic data sets preprint because I've created an R binder, um, which I can send you the link to this. And you can go through and do exactly what was described in the paper, um, which I'm going to update in, 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 in this preprint. Um, so that is, for now, that is the absolute dream scenario. Someone publishes a paper and posts a link. Here is my binder um, website, which you can link to, 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 to GitHub or to Zenodo um, or what have you. And people can click on a link and the analysis and data, bam, pops up in their browser. It's absolutely magic. And I think it's the future. Okay, so in episode 15, we interviewed Ben Marwick, and he was talking about R tools. Do you know this package? Yeah, I've heard of it, and I know of Ben from from Twitter, but I don't know it that well. Does it do something similar? Uh, It is a tool for reproducible analysis where you define your data set. Like, um, It's kind of a procedure to make everything reproducible. Okay. Oh, so it's, it sounds like it does something quite, quite, quite similar. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 yeah, yeah. It sounds very handy. Okay. And in episode four, we talked about reproducible science with Rocker. So do you know about Rocker? Because I think the thing you mentioned before is very similar to Rocker, where you have the Docker images shipped with all the data sets and versions of the same air packages installed. It's very similar. I, I, I think it might even be a Docker wrapper. It's very similar to Docker. It's exactly the same sort of principle. Um, yeah, oh, it, I, I love it. It's fantastic. And I'm going to do it for all my future stuff. What would be your two-sentence statement to convince scientists to share the code and data sets related to their publication? I think one of the most important things is that you trust the results that you're publishing. 
and nothing increases the trust you have or the amount you're actually going to check your data than knowing that other people can check your data as well. Of, of course, uh, you know, you want to be sure of anything that you're sharing, but as soon as you're sharing data and the code, this is something that you check twice, you check three times, and you, and you send to your colleagues. Um, so, by doing and by sharing your data and your code, you actually put more trust in your own uh, analyses and the things that you're sharing yourself. In a perfect world where sharing the code for the analysis and the data sets would be the norm and everybody would do it, like in unicorn land, uh, what would you think would be the next big challenge of science? Uh, I, I think it would something that I've touched on a little bit before, which is this idea of prestige. And a lot of people have said that the prestige is the death of science. And I kind of agree with that. A lot of the problems that we have is due to the fact that we hold certain institutions as prestigious institutions, um, uh, certain journals as prestigious prestigious as well. Um, so once we actually address this problem of prestige, um, and then we can go an extremely long way. Uh, I think transparency through open science is, is going to help that. But the next big challenge, I think, is um, addressing prestige, but also addressing um, the, the, the kind of incentives that we have. Because a lot of the incentives that we have are quite perverse in that you, are, you tend to be rewarded for the amount of, of, of research that you're doing, the amount of papers that you're doing, rather than the quality. And that, that really needs to change. Um, so we need to be changing our incentive systems. I, I think I saw something interesting recently in that um, right now, I mean, we know that impact factors suck. <laughs> they're not accurate. Um, they're not a good way of actually um, determining the importance of a paper. And a lot of people have moved to citation numbers. And I think it's a little bit better um, in that rather than actually looking at where the, where the paper was published, you can look at citation numbers to see how much impact. I'm not sure if I like that word very much, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, how much impact that your paper is having. But um, there was a recent analysis which actually said, well, what do we actually want to – what do we find is really important? And if we think that reproducibility um, for, for a finding is the most important thing, that the level of citations doesn't actually track with how reproducible an analysis is. Um, so if we actually change our incentives to making it about how important reproducibility is, then that, that, that'll change how we do science. So it's about changing incentives, um, but also um, removing this problem of prestige. Okay. We are almost done with the interview, and we will proceed with some of our classic quick questions. We ask all of our interviewees. In recent years, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? I think... The discovery, which really made me go, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, it came out last year, and <laughs> it's extremely niche, um, but I'm going I'm to share it anyway. Um, it was, I do a lot of research, uh, as I mentioned before, in oxytocin, and one of the main things that oxytocin does is it facilitates um, breastfeeding and uh, feeding milk to, 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 to our young, regardless of what kind of mammal you are. Um, if, if you remove the oxytocin gene uh, from, from rodents, then uh, basically the, the pups die because they can't be fed. So it's incredibly important. And we used to think, oh, we think that, you know, breastfeeding and caring of our young is, is, is a uniquely mammalian thing. Um, but last year, this, this super interesting study came out in, uh, in Science, um, which described a spider which fed its young using a milk-like product. Um, and it was basically, what it wasn't in some Amazonian jungle or some jungle in the, in the middle of Indonesia. Um, it was found in a park in Singapore. 
someone found this spider going, hang on a minute, it has all this young kind of around its abdomen. What's, what's going on here? And they took, they took it to the lab and they realized that this spider actually had an organ dedicated to producing milk. Um, and it took care of its young um, beyond the, you know, it's, it's very, it's very sort of early days. Um, and it was the first instance of, of any species other than a mammal that actually used milk uh, to feed its young. Uh, and that, that was a study in the past few years that I just went, wow, that, that's absolutely incredible. Did they found traces of oxytocin in those spiders? <laughs> that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> and what, what, what they found was that um, this milk had actually four times the amount of protein As cow as as cow's milk, so it's incredibly protein rich. So I think the next bit of the analysis is actually figuring out what's in this milk. Um, oxytocin. There, there is a form of oxytocin in some invertebrates. Um, uh, inotocin is the name of it. Um, so I'm not sure whether it's actually in this one, um, but some. Um, yeah, it's rare in spiders, but it's possible. Um, but that's a that's a great question. But they didn't actually re reveal that in the paper. Okay. What is your favorite text processing tool? Um, I'm going to be boring and go with Word, only because that's what my collaborators use. <laughs> I can't bend their um, bend their arms to use something else. Um, when it comes to writing by myself, I love IA Writer, um, which is a uh, I think it's just just on Mac. I'm not too sure, but it's very clean and it's a very easy way to to to, to write text uh, undistracted. Okay. And here's a new question that you will probably be familiar with: uh, Is there a topic in science about which you recently changed your mind about? Yeah, look, I, I used to think that everything should be pre-registered, that the most important science is science that's pre-registered. Um, um, but then more recently, I've come to appreciate the importance of um, the fact that there's two types of science. There's hypothesis-driven research, where it is actually important that you pre-register, but also um, hypothesis-generating research. And in order to actually get to the point where we're testing hypotheses, we need to generate them in the first place. Um, so it is really important that we continue um, with research. And research that is hypothesis-generating is just as important as research um, that is hypothesis-driven. Uh, so that's what I've changed my mind about. Okay. Yeah, at least in my case, everything has changed my mind about, mind about something in that social science are hard <laughs> oh it's incredible it's 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 the hardest science i think everyone everyone looks at it going oh it's just it's so easy but humans there's just so much variability and so much error it's 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 incredibly difficult um is there anything else we forgot to ask you about or that we should have known to ask you about No, I, I think that's all. I think, yeah, if, if, if people are, if people are interested to, to, to hear more of my perspectives when it comes to open science, um, they should check out Everything Hurts. Um, and, um, if they're also interested in research looking at oxytocin and, uh, autonomic physiology, I, I have a second podcast, which I host by myself called, uh, Physi Physiology and Behavior. And I can send the, um, the link to that as well. Um, but uh, I think that's, uh, that, that, that's all the stuff there. Is there anything else you would like to share with us? No, I think that's that's that that that's all the stuff. Um, I want to go check out these episodes that you mentioned now. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, thank you, Dan, for your time and this interview. Uh, for listeners who may want to contact you, uh, what is the best way to contact you? Um, either over Twitter or Instagram. Uh, my name is at ds Quintana, and I also have a, a contact form on my website, which is dsquintana.com, that people can contact me over as well. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. 
Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is on a new location. We moved it to flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page, where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.